Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to find out more information about our show, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Our first topic today is from the Reverse Wine Snob. It's a blog, and they were talking about how do volcanic soils influence wine. And Kim, this is uh, maybe a little of a geeky wine subject, yeah, but talking you get to get soils. Yeah, a little geeky. Some you know, wine, wine people love to talk about dirt, and volcanic soils are one of the trending topics as far as soil and place contributing to the flavor of the wine and also the quality of the wine. So this is a topic that, that's been on our radar for a little bit. And in wine education, we learn what type of soils are in what type of areas, and it's interesting to actually taste the influence of this type of soil. It's not just volcanic rock, it can be volcanic volcanic ash soils. So it's a very interesting topic when you're tasting and comparing. Mm-hmm. I think that it's also very interesting to, to learn why does this particular type of soil impact the grapevine the way that it does, and then therefore changes the flavor a little bit. So for me, this article was very interesting, because it's not just about the minerals in the soil, or how much nutrition the, the grapevine is getting from the soils, but a lot of it has to do with drainage and how how uh, volcanic soils let water kind of seep away a little bit better than some other types of soil. And sometimes grapevines really need that. And that contributes to higher quality grape. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Kim, you mentioned the drainage. And that's really important because not all volcanic soil can grow grapes, but because it needs that drainage. Right. Correct. So So grapevines are, they're a funny kind of plant because usually you want soil that has a lot of nutrients in it in order to feed the fruit. But the thing about grapevines is that they need to struggle a little bit in order to produce the highest quality fruit that they can. So when a vine is forced to send its roots really, really deep in order to find water, it produces better grapes, which then translates into better wines. So when you have a type of soil like volcanic soil that all the water just kind of drains away through it, you're forcing the grapevine to struggle a little bit, which then contributes to this higher quality level of, uh, of fruit. And the other great benefit, you're talking about the roots in the volcanic soil, is that in the past, it was very resistant to the phylloxera right. bug. So like sandy soils, volcanic soils also were not affected by this, which was very key in production in a lot of the areas. Right. And that that's important to remember because there were some areas, some areas in the world now still are on their own original root systems that did not get affected by this little bug that uh, destroyed most of the grapevines in Europe in the late 1800s. And a lot of that was due to what kind of soil were they planted on. So that's kind of for one of those wine geeky things that, that we like to delve into, but it contributes to the age of the grapevine, which then again also contributes to the quality of the grapes themselves. The volcanic wine trend, I felt, was more of a restaurant movement where sommelier was getting on the bandwagon to, to show these to people. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of consumers may also 
like this trend but not know why. In other words, they're looking for, they're not coming in looking for volcanic soil wines, but they're asking for Sicilian wines because they might like that profile of a Sicilian wine grown on volcanic soil. Right. And we do see this with a lot of areas that maybe they are islands that have or had volcanoes. Sardinia is another good example of a very mountainous place that produces really excellent wines. Yeah, all these wines from Sicily, the little islands off of Sicily, Greek wines as well. There's a lot of volcanic soil in the Greek islands. And so that's why one of the reasons why we get such fantastic wines from those places too. And these are things that are really just starting to come on people's radar as far as a American wine consumers go. So you're right. I think that there is this style similarity to a lot of these wines that people might not know why they like them, but that they know that they do like them. And there's areas that probably surprise people to know that in the United States, for instance, Oregon has little patches of volcanic rock and soil Mm -hmm. that make very interesting Pinot Noir. So there was actually a producer at one time was making a Pinot Noir, and the name of it was Fire, because it was on volcanic soil. And you could actually taste a difference in the in the two. So that was my next question to you, Kim, is when you taste a, a wine on a volcanic soil, what do you get out of it on your palate? It's, it's kind of more minerality, which is a tough description to kind of wrap your head around. But some of it has to do with this almost like a chalky flavor or a chalky feel to it. It has something to do with the way that the tannins feel in your mouth. They're not those big, silky, lush, California oaky tannins, but there's something a little drier about them. But I really like minerally wines, so I do like this style, and that that minerality there definitely gets me. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the minerality thing is interesting because for me, it's almost like an iron, that type of mineral. It's not, to me, it's not that smooth, like chalky feeling. It's more of a a rustic mineral, if that makes sense. Yeah. And is that more of a flavor or is that more of a feel for you? Yeah, I'm getting more of a flavor than it's a bolder texture to me, but more of a different style of minerality. Yeah. So for me, maybe a better food wine than just a soft drinking Mm -hmm. wine. Yeah, and a lot of them do come across as very dry. I've noticed that with a lot of the Sicilian ones, especially the ones grown on Mount Etna. They are grapes that do have some good fruitiness to them, but there's always this sort of backbone of savoriness that they're not big, sweet, jammy wines. There's something a little bit more restrained about them. In the wine world, like you mentioned, chalky, if you see a vineyard and it's grown in chalk, you almost expect to get that flavor in in your mouth in the wine. But when you see this volcanic soil and some of them ash, it's actually a black ash. It's hard to picture that in your mind when you taste it, what you're going to get from that. Mm -hmm. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about me at my website, vinitaswineworks.com. And more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com. Now we wanted to talk to you about a particular style of wine that is very, very popular at the moment. And that is jammy red wines, which we do see a lot of from places like California, Australia, warmer climates. So places that have a lot of sunshine and a lot of heat that produce red wines that have a lot of sweet fruit flavor to them. Yeah, and jammy was, has always been associated with the Zinfandel grape. So when when you hear jammy or when you're saying jammy wines to someone, Kim, let's get on the same page. What are you describing when you say jammy wine? 
So usually berry fruit, so like a lot of blackberry, a lot of raspberry, but sometimes there is an element of it almost tastes like that fruit is cooked. So it literally reminds me of jam, like what you would put on a sandwich or on a biscuit. So yeah, big, fruity, concentrated, and a lot of this does come from those overripe grapes that I don't want to say they've been cooked on the vine, but they might have gotten so much heat and so much sunshine that those flavors are now something that you would would not be out of place in a jam jar. Is it mostly the Zinfandel varietal you get it from? Not just Zin. I mean, Zin is really big there. Almost always in my descriptions for Zinfandel, I will have some play on jam or cooked or brambles. Also like raspberry, blackberry, things along those lines. But I do find them in other things too. If you have a really overripe, say, Grenache or Shiraz, it'll be that way. And sometimes you can even run across it in things like Merlot, Petite Syrah. There's a lot of these flavors in there for me as well. I think the jammy description falls into the same categories if you just say berry. Like I liked how you said earlier, jammy. It's raspberry. It's blackberry jam. Don't just tell me it's jammy because I could be thinking grape jam. Yeah, right? well, a little bit of grapiness there too, yeah. but certainly not like apricot jam or peach jam or orange marmalade. You were talking those those red and sometimes black fruits. Yeah, and I get this a lot like a different type of with Tempranillo. I always tell oh, you in the past, my grape okay. grape. I always say it's jammy, but it's to me it's on the grape side. It's not on the blackberry. or. But, so it actually tastes like a grape to you. Yeah. Okay. That's the way. Sure. So I'll say jammy, but I'll kind of break it down a little more. So I just wanted to see if we're on the same page as far as the jammy descriptor. And I like to talk about those descriptions too. You know, the more words that we can put to it, hopefully that makes it more understandable for all of you folks as you are tasting wine and are maybe struggling to find the right words to attach to the wines that you are drinking or the wines that you're thinking about. In this article, the subject was actually the love jammy wines, but don't tell them how it's made. Because like you said, it could be from super ripe fruit that gives you this jammy style, but there's other things that can be done to make a jammy wine because people or manufacturers say or wineries know that this is a popular style so they want to create it but they might not have ripe fruit so they do a few things right so this obviously is a very popular style of wines right now there's always a market for semi-sweet wines and people don't like to admit that they like sugar in their wines but line up a whole mess of wines and chances are a lot of people will gravitate towards those wines that do have some residual sweetness to them We just, human beings love sugar and there's no getting around that. And you really do need to train your palate and practice to like wines that don't have sweetness to them. But there's no denying that sweet and sugar is very delicious. So people really do like those wines and there's a big, big market for them. But like you said, sometimes either that fruit hasn't ripened enough to get to that level where the producer wants it to be so that it'll taste good to the consumer. So sometimes sugar is added or sometimes it's the opposite. Those grapes were left on the vine for so long in order to get those big jammy flavors that then you have too much alcohol or too much sugar, not enough acid, not enough liquid, and then acid and water have to be added back into it in order to create create a wine that is more consistent. And I don't think 
people are thinking how that jamminess is getting in the wine or, or concerned no, if I don't it's think ripe so either. berries or if it's acids no. or if it's sugar. I think people are just concerned, does it taste good? It's I don't, I don't think that a lot of people even think about how was this wine made, especially when you're talking about big commercial brands that are going for $10 a bottle. I mean, if you like what a wine tastes like, how much time are you spending? I don't mean you, Mark, because I know you spend a lot of time thinking about these things. But you as a consumer, how much time are you putting into thinking about, I wonder how this wine is made. I wonder how those flavors got in there. I, I don't really think it's something that people think about. Yeah, and it's additives that are legal. They they can be used, but they once again, they don't have to tell you that they're using them. They're approved by the TTB for winemakers to use, but you don't know they're in there and you don't have to be told that they're in there. Right. So but if th- you like the wine, you like the wine, right? Right. Yeah. And I think a rule of thumb for consumers, a lot of it does come down to look at the price point of the wine. So if you're drinking a wine that is $9.99 and it's got big, lush, fruity flavors, those jammy notes, has some sugar to it, it's easy to drink, just be aware that this is probably a wine that is in the category of these things that we're talking about. Now, that being said, there are wines out there that the producer has spent a little bit more time thinking about or spending time with their vines so they know the exact right time to harvest so they don't have to worry about adding acid or they don't have to worry about adding extra water. But those they're gonna co- that's going to cost you because that extra time and that extra manpower does add to the price tag. So those things, the one that pops into my mind is something Something like the Zinfandels from Ridge, which is a producer from California that is very meticulous about, you know, every single moment of that grapevine's life. But those start at like 35 bucks a bottle. So that is more the hands-on approach as opposed to these, which are more commercial, but then a lower price tag. I thought this article did a good job of drawing you in to say, oh no, worry. But then it did a good technical explanation of, you know, these are why. But it gave you the good side and the bad side. Right. And I, what was interesting for me, was the part they were talking about why is extra water added in? Why do you want to up the acidity? And a lot of it had to do with the balance of the wine as a stable food product. If you have not enough alcohol, but too much sugar and not enough water, there's a chance that that wine could literally spoil and go bad and get moldy. So winemakers do have to be careful that all of those components are in balance or otherwise you don't have a stable bottle of wine, which is not something that we think about all the time because we tend to think about, oh, alcoholic beverages, you know, that lasts forever. Don't expect your bottle of vodka to go bad. You also don't expect your bottle of wine to go bad unless it's too old and then the flavors have fallen apart. But from a winemaking perspective, I think that is also important to think about. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please visit her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please visit franklinliquors.com. Next, we're going to talk about a subject that was in winespectator.com and another health-related article in wine. But this one is, for maximum health, always have wine with a meal. And very eye-opening topic here, Kim. Yeah, it is. And we tell people all the time that if and when you're drinking, you really should be doing it with food because that will help you absorb the alcohol a little bit better. You won't uh, get as impacted by the alcohol, shall we say. Um, Hangovers will be kept to a minimum and it's just better for you. But what was excellent about this article was that it did sort of spell out why is it better for you? So there were a couple of points that I thought were really kind of important to talk about. Yeah, so you mentioned the first one was to have some food in your system consuming alcohol 
because after you consume alcohol at about an hour after is when it takes effect. So if you have food in your system, it slows down that process. Right. It really does take a while for your body to process out alcohol that you've been drinking. And we talk about having protein or having fat and sometimes carbohydrates, you know, having those things in your system. And it's not that you then have less alcohol in your system. What happens is that all the food in your stomach slows the alcohol from getting into the rest of your body and can st- and then you can start processing it while it's actually in your stomach. So what was interesting and a bit that I didn't know that I learned from this article was that the enzymes that are in your liver that break down alcohol are also in small amounts also in your stomach. So when you have food in your system and that alcohol remains in your stomach for a longer amount of time, you're actually taking the load off of your liver a little bit because your stomach is literally starting to to digest and start to break down that alcohol. So you're able to kind of spread the alcohol breakdown process throughout your body. So you've, you're taxing uh, your different organ systems a little bit less. So the liver, it basically makes things pass through your intestines faster, correct? Which means it also having wine with a meal, it aids in digestion. So Mm -hmm. it's linked to that. Right. It all works together. And we always see, every time we mention an article with health and wine, you always see good points and bad points. It's always moderation, obviously. But I liked how they had so many different things in this article. And the other thing I really like, because my doctor always says I'm fat, is it helps you watch your weight. And I'm thinking, why would that happen? Yeah. Right, Kim? So this was interesting because it, it made sense to me because when you have a beverage or wine with your meal, you tend to consume less food. So your weight would then be lower. Right. And there's it, also something that scientists aren't 100% sure why it works, but it seems that when you have food and wine together, something about the wine is helping you metabolize the calories in your food a little bit better. And we don't really know why this is. There's a lot of question marks out there still, and there's always ongoing research, but interesting that there do seem to be significant benefits to your digestion if you are having wine with food as opposed to food by itself or wine by itself. And I never thought of it that way because usually when you drink, you tend to have this thing where you're hungrier, right? You eat more because you're drinking, but they're saying you will actually consume 25% less food if you have the wine with It your does meal. seem sort of counterintuitive, and they specifically mentioned fatty foods in here, that you're less likely to consume a lot of fatty foods for whatever reason when you're having wine. And maybe that's just because maybe if you have a beer by itself and then you really want some chicken wings, whereas if you're having a glass of wine with your steak, you know, you're much less likely to go for those chicken wings afterwards. I don't know. But yeah, some interesting points here. I like the weight thing. And the other food point they made was you're less likely to get any risk of disease from a food if you're consuming the wine alcohol with the food because the wine Food poisoning one. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I can't say that that has proven true for me for the the one time that I had very terrible food poisoning. I was drinking wine. It didn't seem to help me any. But yeah, interesting to see what this uh, research, ongoing research will show us. So you're the foodie, Kim. So Mm. when it was talking about removes things, the wine, it, it was also saying it removes harmful substances from red meats. You talked fried foods and processed foods as well. Do you know what that entails? Is it just like the alcohol is killing something in the meat? I think it more has to do with fats in the meat. 
unless they're talking about there are certain methods of cooking meat that will then generate cancer causing compounds. And I think that might be what they're referring to here, because we talk a lot when we talk about the health benefits of wine, about the antioxidants and about the, you know, the anthocyanins, which are those color compounds in wine skins, and that they bond with other substances that we get from either other foods or from our environment that slows down the oxidative process, which is what contributes to aging and what contributes to disease. So a lot of the times when we talk about these cancer-causing agents, we will then in the same breath talk about antioxidants and that they work together and that the antioxidants, that's why they're healthy is because they can remove from our systems these compounds that cause disease. So I think that is what this research is looking into. Yeah, it makes sense. So basically you can have fried foods and you have processed foods because the wine in, in a way is doing something good for it. Mm, kind of I, I I think it mitigates it to some degree. I don't think it's it gives you carte blanche to eat terrible oh, food and have well. a bad diet and just as we have a glass of wine with it, it everything will be okay. I don't think that's what they're saying. Yeah. Um, I think it's more Doritos saying there that's right, Doritos <laughs> and wine. I think it's more like, all right, if you have a steak on the grill and we know that grilling foods, meat especially, actually makes them more dangerous to our bodies, that that might be kept at bay a little bit if we have a nice glass of red wine with that steak. I like that. Yes. So let's talk about the one of the other things they mentioned about how having wine with food is better for diabetics and that it metabolizes sugars and starches to control the sugar better. Mm-hmm. And I guess I think it all comes down to that same idea that y- your body will metabolize things better if you have food in your stomach. So whether it's the sugars in the foods or whether it's the sugar in the wine or that it's the alcohol in the wine, that it all plays better together. I mean, as a diabetic, you wouldn't want to just sit there and drinking just wine or having no. just a heavy meal, but the combination of the two, right. probably a better balance. Right. And of course, diabetics should always clear these things with their doctors and know what, what their systems can handle when it comes to their intake of food and beverage and to be careful of alcohol because of the calories and the sugars and things like that. And especially if you don't necessarily know how much sugar is in a particular wine. And I feel like that's something that we get a question about every once in a while is, well, how do I know if this wine has residual sugar in it? And how is that going to affect me? So again, it's one of those things that doing a little bit of research will help you. And if you treat wine like it's a food stuff, which in a lot of the world, that is how they view it, then I think you have a a healthier, their relationship with it. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more about our show at Facebook, The Wonderful World of Wine, or by going to our websites, franklinliquors.com and vinitaswineworks.com. A topic for this next segment is cocktails, but not just cocktails, sparkling wine cocktails. So it puts two of my favorite things together. Yeah, the bubbly queen. And they (laughs) they mentioned champagne cocktails, but as we always stress, sparkling wine cocktails. so funny for me about this is that the title of it is champagne cocktails and at the end of the article they're like but don't use champagne you know use these other things use prosecco use cava use cremant don't use the really expensive stuff and i think that this is a good a good point because sometimes you have a bottle of good champagne that you want to drink and then other times you have bottles of something else and you really want to make a cocktail with them and you should go ahead and use those less expensive bottles of something bubbly regardless of where it's from to make some really fun, refreshing, good seasonal cocktails. It's funny that you noticed that too, because I saw the same thing at the end when they said, don't use the expensive stuff, but <laughs> they said champagne. I'm going, they don't even know the difference between champagne and sparkling wine, but no, they corrected and said, 
yeah. to use the other. Yeah. So. But uh, we also do need to keep that in mind because most of the wine consuming public, I think, doesn't necessarily differentiate between champagne with a capital C and champagne with a small C. So sometimes we just use the word champagne for generic bubbly wine. But in this case, don't use the expensive stuff. But there were a lot of great recipes for pretty classic champagne cocktails here. The first one that they mentioned was the Cure Royale, which is something that I think a lot of people are familiar with. It is sparkling wine and a liqueur from Dijon, France called Cassis, which is black currant liqueur. Yeah. And they said you can also use a Chambord or raspberry liqueur. Mm-hmm. Or Kim, I have a food measuring question for you because they, okay. they tell you how much Cassis to put in the drink. So they're saying a quarter teaspoon of the liqueur and fill it with, with sparkling wine, correct? So That's a tiny, tiny Yeah. Bit. That was my question to you because yeah. I, I was uh, like three teaspoons is 15 milliliters. So it's not even a shot. No, right? it's not. Did that seem right to you? I would put more in personally for mine, and I have. Cassis is more viscous than Chambord. So if this recipe is based on Cassis, maybe they, maybe what they did is that they were just substituting one in for the other, and then the original recipe that called for the Cassis only used that little bit because it is stronger in flavor than Chambord, and it is texturally a little bit different. So I can kind of see how this would work using Cassis, but with Chambord, I would add a little bit more. So I would probably do maybe a half an ounce for a Chambord flute and then fill it up with bubbles. Yeah, I was going to say most drinks use at least a half a shot or a shot yeah. glass. And, yeah. And they said the reason they mentioned the Chambord and uh, as raspberry substitute was the cream this cassis is hard to find, which I don't find that true. I think it's a no, pretty I don't staple either. in the liquor industry. But I think Chambord is a little bit more of a pleasant flavor, honestly, for people because black currant, at least for the American palate, that's not something you run across all that often. If you're English, than it is. But if you're American, I think that you're more likely to be familiar with blackberry and raspberry flavors. So this is a good substitute. Yeah. And I have a lot of English customers who actually buy the cassis mm-hmm. for this particular yeah. purpose. Yep. Yep. I definitely see that. So next was the French 75, Kim. And this cocktail has actually been trending a lot because a few producers came out with this in a can form. Yep. I love this cocktail. I have a recipe for a blueberry French 75 on my website. So if you are interested in trying trying out one of these with a little bit of a summery blueberry kick, uh, head on over to Vinitas Wineworks and check out the blog post for this recipe. But what it is, is gin and lemon juice and sugar and your bubbles and blueberry (laughs) for mine. But it's refreshing. It's very easy to drink, sometimes a little too easy to drink. And the little bit of gin and lemon, I think work really, really nicely with sparkling wine. So the blueberry, you're adding to the original ingredients. Yes. So I mash up some blueberries with the lemon juice. Sometimes you can add a little bit of something extra like maybe rosemary or a little bit of basil to add an herbal twist to it as well. But I think that just adds to the the summertime flavors too. And they did say one ounce of gin. So a shot yeah, of gin. Yeah, shot of so gin. It's a good amount. Half ounce lemon juice, half ounce simple syrup. Do you use simple syrup? Sometimes. If I'm muddling, so if I was doing it with another kind of fruit and in my shaker, I would put some sugar and the fruit and then I would mash all of that together. I wouldn't necessarily use the simple syrup. But what happens if you use simple syrup instead of just sugar is everything comes together a little bit easier because that sugar is already dissolved in water. So they did say you mix the gin, the lemon juice, the 
simple syrup separate. You shake that and then you pour that into the mixture. So you're not combining right. it. No. Usually if you're making champagne cocktails, you want to add the champagne at the very end because if you agitate it too much, you're going to kill your bubbles and you really want to keep the bubbles in the wine. That's the whole point of using sparkling wine. So next was the Italian sparkling wine cocktail, the Bellini, very which is classic. always trending. Right? Yes. Yep. So peach juice and Prosecco. It's You can't get any easier than that. And as a substitute, a lot of people will use like a peach brandy or peach liqueur or peach tree is very popular. Mm -hmm. And that's also been trending a lot with peach tree and, and sparkling. Right. And, you know, a nice little twist on these two. And especially if you're in a well-stocked grocery store, go to the Goya aisle and get a, a little can of mango juice and try Bellinis with mango instead of peach. And those are also delicious. That's a good tip. Yeah. Now, the next one was Death in the Afternoon. And this was an interesting drink that Ernest Hemingway used to have. This is the only one on the list that I have not had. And it uses absinthe, which has only been legal in the U.S. for about a dozen years. So this is not something that I think a lot of people regularly keep in their liquor cabinet because it has this idea of it being a bit of a hallucinogen uh, associated with it. So I don't think there's a whole lot of absinthe in people's liquor cabinet. But uh, yeah, I no, guess you could mix it with some champagne. When it was first released, there was this big thing because it was illegal. Oh, and now I it's know, on the I shelf. remember. And there's a French version and there's a Swiss version. But the last cocktail they mentioned was sparkling wine with uh, Saint Germain or with an elderflower liqueur. This was this started to be trending, I think, a couple of summers ago, and I remember that this was really, really a hot cocktail. It's simple enough that you only need two ingredients, but again, it's another one of those things that if you wanted to change it up a little bit, there are other things that you could add to it too. But the nice thing about that Saint Germain elderflower liqueur is that it's got a lot of really beautiful floral flavors to it, but it also has a little bit of sweetness. So you're making a very, I think, approachable cocktail for people with the, with the champagne and the elderflower. One of the things, Kim, that's always interesting when there's recipes on the internet or you can always tell when something's posted on social media, people coming in look, looking for certain ingredients, is they always tend to recommend the highest price. So in this case, the the Saint Germain is was the original. It's expensive, but there's other companies out there that now make what, what they would call the Bob brand name. So there's right. an, there's an, another version called Saint Elder, which is half the price. So when you're mixing with a sparkling like this, you don't have to use always the top tier that's recommended. This substitutes to right. save you some money, especially yep. when you're mixing it as a cocktail. Yeah, that's a that's a good bit of advice. And again, it's the same exact advice that we always use with what should your sparkling wine be that you use for these. Go ahead and use that twelve dollar bottle of Prosecco or use that $10 bottle of Cava. Don't go for the expensive stuff because you are mixing it with things that have a lot of their own flavor to them. You know, you want the crispness, you want the bubble, you want the refreshing, but you don't need to waste those champagnes that have a lot of nuance and should be drunk on their own. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. Please find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. You can reference all of these articles through that Facebook page, and we will visit with you again next week. <laughs>